Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exists, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. And my name's Marshall. And we just missed that last statement. <laughs> I'm so glad we did. <laughs> Sometimes I say things off the mic, which are better said off the mic. It was nothing bad. You just said we're not Presbyterian. That's true. And yeah, that's true. Yeah. So at this point in history, mm-hmm. we have talked a lot about foundational things. Yeah. Growth, movements, kind of things. People that have been catalysts in moving ideas forward. Mm-hmm. Um, in some instances, we've gotten into the birth of denominations. Yeah. Lutheranism, the Reformed Church, and its various parts, Presbyterian. Well, that, that's very identifiable. Yeah. Anglicanism, Presbyterianism. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've nailed down a lot of the churches around town that have their roots. In some ways, I, I would say this, we're, we're coming to a place post-Reformation where what is, what is being said is the Catholic Church has gotten way off base and it needs to be roped in. The further we get away from the Reformation before your brand of Christianity shows up, the more questionable it becomes from a historical perspective. Some would definitely hold to that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And and I would I would also say there's been a lot of yeah, we're gonna see schisms and splits amongst the groups that we have going forward. Um but the group we're gonna talk about today is easily the biggest mess of any denomination or brand of Christianity out there. They are they're a hot mess historically Agreed. and organizationally. Agreed. Um not without reason. Right. It, it's it's sort of written into their ethos. Yeah. Like we plan to be a mess. They're going to be disorganized because it's that's part of it's by design. Right. Yeah. Um and and the truth is you're going to have friends and family, listeners. You're going to have friends and family who are very much a part of this group and you're going to be a little offended for me to say this is a hot mess. Mm. And and these people are uh their history is hard to pin down because of it. They claim all kinds of weird things historically. Yeah. So We're going to get into it today, but today is the episode on the Baptist. Yeah. How you feeling about it? <laughs> I feel I feel good. I feel like there's there's a, there's a lot to wade through here. Mm-hmm. There's some false notions that may need to be corrected. Mm-hmm. There are some bits of history that are both challenging, encouraging. Um, there are some things that, you know, some people who, you know, maybe one of our listeners might get really offended. You know, hopefully we don't lose them uh, and be left with only one. But, uh, you know, we're going to say some things that are, you know, not less than flattering about Baptists, but just acknowledging the challenges that come with what it means to be a Baptist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to... Those groups we've already talked about, right. Lutherans, Presbyterians, Anglicans, right. etc. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you, you mentioned our listeners. Mm. Last week, we kind of left off with the idea that this week we would have names for this concept that we have of only two listeners, and mm-hmm. we talk about them as if they are people and that they deserve to be named. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we got a text, a group text from Eric, yeah. <laughs> who just said... 
please don't name the listeners because he likes to believe that he's one and there's another one out there. <laughs> and I thought that's way more fun. I asked him if he's the one who almost leaves every time we make a flat earth joke. <laughs> but it's, I think it might be the other one. I think it's the other one. I don't think it's him. I think it's the other one. It's just more fun that yeah, way. It is. And it so is. let's leave it alone. The mystery. Okay. Yeah. So kick us off. So some things that are going on kind of in the air that we're going to talk about. So the timeline, again, we're, we're, because we're focusing on a particular group, there's a lot of crossover from last week's episode on the Puritans because, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, some of the Puritans are Baptists. Um, and so it's the same kind of time frame, but we're going to focus more in on a particular group and a group that, that obviously you and I and a good number of our listeners, I'm sure, have a, have a connection with. Um, so in this era... Here's some things that are going on kind of in the the mid to late 1600s. In 1641, René Descartes publishes his Meditations on Philosophy. If you've done any kind of philosophical training uh, post-high school, Descartes is someone that you're going to be familiar with. He was a a deist at least, a Christian maybe, um, but very, very interesting uh, writing on concepts of, of truth and value and, and purpose and that sort of thing. In 1666... Hold on. Oh, sorry. You can't talk about Rene Descartes and not tell people that he's the guy that coined the I think, therefore I am. Right. So True. Yes. Thank you. Im- yeah. An important bit of information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 1666 is the Great Fire of London. The Great Fire of London burned for four days, and it destroyed most of the oldest parts of the city of London, which had existed since Roman times. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did a, a bus tour through the city of London with my wife uh, years ago, uh, they explained to us that there was actually very little in the old city of London that you could find that was older than you know 450 years because so much of it had been destroyed. Um so, yeah, and unfortunately, it was, it was a significant fire, and it actually, I mean, when it happened, was perceived to have had spiritual causes due to the sinfulness. I mean, the people at the time saw it as mm-hmm. as God's vengeance for the sinfulness of the people right. uh, of the city of London at that time. It, for people who live in the Americas, the concept of old just doesn't register in the same way no. as people from the British Isles or or mainland Europe. Mm -hmm. It's a different concept. It's a different kind of old, yeah. Um, 1683, we have the Battle of Vienna. And this was the turning point of Ottoman Empire expansion. So the Ottoman Empire was an Islamic empire centered in Turkey. They had conquered Constantinople. They had taken big bites out of Europe. And up until this point in 1683, the Muslim conquest of Europe was a very real thing. That all Europeans lived with, like, yeah, it could totally happen that the Islamic Empire swallows up all of Europe and ends Christendom, ends Western mm-hmm. society as we know it, period. And this defeat was kind of a turning point. They would slowly begin to decline after this point, and they would be crushed in World War I. Uh, was when they'd finally, the end would be put to the Ottoman Empire. But it's a significant moment uh, in history. 1689... The Bill of Rights gains royal consent. This Bill of Rights and 
the documents that surround it were extremely important at the time, extremely important even in some of the discussions we're going to have today. Mm-hmm. Um, parts of the Bill of Rights are still standing legal statutes, not only in Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. They are The Bill of Rights of 1689 is foundational in our system of law in Commonwealth nations. Right. And, and also, I would say even in American nation, the American nation as well, just simply because despite the revolution that's coming, they're still going to pattern themselves pretty significantly off of their British forebears. So, Did you know that outside of the U.S. and Canada, all across Latin America, they hate the term Americans? Yeah, because... Because they're like, we're Americans too. Right, yeah, I know. At which case you're like, well, what else would you call a person from the United Statesian? <laughs> a I don't know. statesman. Yeah, they just, they just see it as an they see it as an arrogant thing that they would call themselves Americans when there is the American continent that everyone is from. Right. Yeah. Just when you said the American nation, it just reminded me yeah. of that. I mean, but it is. But I'm over it. <laughs> like, is it arrogant? Yes. Am I over it? Also, yes. I, I, I don't know. I I don't know what else you would call someone. What what do you call someone from the United Arab Emirate? I don't know. Hold on, let's ask Google. Someone from the United. Move on. Arab move Emirates. on with it. Move on with a random. Okay. So, 1694 is the last thing that I've had. So, go quick there, Tim. The Bank of England is established, uh, and the Bank of England essentially is going to also, just like the Bill of Rights, is going to set the model for a lot of Western legal systems. The Bank of England is going to set the model for a lot of the modern centralized banking systems that we have today. So this idea of having a kind of solid central um, bank that has strong ties to the governmental authorities and his, his purpose is to kind of establish some kind of fiscal stability over the nation. Um, that's 1694. So that's kind of things that are going on during this time. Emirati. Emirati. So it's not the same. Statesman. You call them statesmen. Yeah, but every every country has a statesman. Yeah. Plus, you're being masculine-centered, which is very unbecoming. States person. States people. Okay, moving on. Today, we got to talk about Baptists. So here... Okay. When it comes to the origin of Baptists, okay, there are theories. There are. There are. I would say. I'd say there's. I would say there's three main theories. Agreed. Um, one is mm, not good. The second one is better, but not totally accurate. And the third one, I think, is the best one, and that's probably where we're going to land. Yeah, I think at this point people believe that we do pre-show prep. We don't, and and that we are already in agreement, pretending not. When I said there was three, and you said yes, I was like, oh, thank goodness, right? Because <laughs> that's what I see. Yeah, we we have found that it's better for us to prep separately mm-hmm. and then come together because it keeps the discussion more lively. The chemistry is just yeah. flowing. Yeah, the first theory that I think we need to debunk. Mm. Is the trail of blood. The trail of blood, also known as landmarkism. Yeah. Tell us about the trail of blood, Tim. So the notion of the trail of blood, and there are going to be a number of people highly upset. This is, in Southern Baptist context, the most popular Mm. of the positions. Mm -hmm. Um, 
for some reasons that will come later in landmarkism, I probably would have started with what you're going to have as number two, okay, I believe. Sorry. But that's okay. We can we can do this. Uh, landmarkism, trail of blood, is the notion that, as I said earlier, the later your brand of Christianity pops up, the more questionable it becomes. Mm. Right? Right. Why is it that just now all of a sudden people think this way? Landmarkism speaks to that and says, nope, we have always been here. Mm. The Baptists have always existed, and throughout church history, there have been parallel groups, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, uh, the Reformed Church, and it wasn't until the Anabaptist tradition in the Reformation that you start seeing Baptists really coming to the surface as a predominant group, but we can trace Baptist tradition all the way back to John himself. Right. And that is historically inaccurate. It is. I'm going to make a, a really gross comparison here, but in the same way that Islam claims to have historical roots that go all the way back to Abraham mm-hmm. and Ishmael, it doesn't. Yeah. Like, literally, there is no historical record of this group of people believing what they believe, practicing their faith until mm-hmm. 680. Yeah. Now, to be clear, you and I would both agree that the early church, led by the apostles, practiced believer's baptism. Right. And so the the difference, the, the terminology we're going to use here is creedal baptism. Mm. You state your faith, this is what I believe, and for that, you are then baptized. Even paedo-baptists, which those who would baptize infants of believers without a creedal statement based on the fact that their parents are believers, even a paedo-baptist historian will acknowledge that Creedal baptism was the predominant, if not universal, means of baptism until 500, at which point the church makes a hard shift and things become predominantly pedo-baptistic. By 500, we've already seen the comings and goings of Augustine. Right. Like, we're pretty deep in this. We're deep into church history, yeah. Um, and, so, and so in 500 is kind of when we start seeing the Catholic Church go off the rails. Sure, yeah. Right? And, yeah. So, and so at that point, it is the only church by way of militant, literally militant uh, persecution mm-hmm. against other forms of faith, and the church going off the rails, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that it disappears for me, is not a theological problem. Yeah. And so so what is going to be argued in Trail of Blood is that Augustine w- was a Baptist and didn't even know it. And, <laughs> and that these people... He was baptized as an adult, he admittedly. Was. <laughs> uh, even a paedo-baptist today would take an adult sure, who, yeah. who claimed faith and, and of course, yeah, baptized of course them based on their creed. Yeah. Um, so they are both... Pato and Creed, Creedal and Baptists. Augustine, I don't think, was baptized by immersion, probably. Actually, hard to say. Yeah. We don't really know. Uh, but they would say that all of those leading up 
to 500 were Baptists. <laughs> they were Christians, and that's just what they were called as Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we know today as Baptists, there, there might be a little... You want to bend some things around, maybe mm. a little something to that, but that through the Catholic tradition, there was always a group from from the the really questionable part comes from 500 until 1600. Yeah, <laughs> which is like only like 1100 years. Right. <laughs> I have I have in my hands a book written by George W. McDaniel. Okay. Published in 1919. Okay. This book is. Old. Published by uh, Southern Baptist Convention out of uh, their publishing house in Nashville. It's so old that I can't even open it all the way to read it. Uh, so now, Robin Holmes is the publisher of the Southern Baptist B&H. Okay. Oh, B&H. Okay, yeah. Right? Uh, this is before it had taken on that name. This is when they were still publishing as the Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. This book is so old and delicate that if anyone came to me and said, hey, I'm really interested in the history of the Baptist, and I would love to get my hands on that book, the answer is no, <laughs> unless you're Paul Thistle. <laughs> I could trust him with any book. Only, <laughs> Paul, if you're listening, the offer is extended. You are the only one that I would trust with this. In, in this book, the very beginnings of it, he starts off by talking about uh, Baptist distinctions mm. uh, theologically, and then he goes into a noble ancestry. Okay. Is the next section. How does he trace it? He says this, to be well-born is to enter life with advantage. Baptists are justly proud of their parentage, the New Testament. They have an ancient and scriptural origin. Certain characters in history are named as founders of various denominations. The disciples, uh, hold on. Reading a book that's mostly closed is hard. Sure, fair enough. Uh, the disciples began with Alexander Campbell, the uh, yeah, the Methodists with John Wesley, the Presbyterians with John Calvin, the Lutherans with Martin Luther, and the Church of England with Henry VIII, and Kramer's book of common prayers in the reign of Edward VI. Not so with Baptists. There is no personality this side of Jesus Christ who is a satisfactory explanation of their origin. The New Testament churches were independent, self-governing, democratic bodies like the Baptist Church of today. I think I'll give him that. Mm. I think church polity is very Baptist. Self, independent, self-governing for sure. Yep. Democratic, mm, maybe. We originated not at the Reformation, nor in the Dark Ages, nor in any century after the apostles. But our marching orders are the commission. The first Baptist church was the first church at Jerusalem. Our principles are as old as Christianity, and we acknowledge no founder but Christ. Okay. (laughs) So, there's a yes but technically no answer here. Yeah, I, I agree. Right? We are 
we hold to our Baptistic convictions because we do believe it to be the closest interpretation to what the what was originally described in the book of Acts and mm-hmm. the epistles of Paul, etc. So certainly, yes. But to suggest that there is this uninterrupted line of those who held to common views regarding church government, the appropriate candidates of baptism, the separation of church and state, which are the three main identifiers of a Baptist church, throughout all of, you know, Dark Age, Medieval, and post, you know, like up mm-hmm. through the Reformation, that just did, that's not true. Right. There were groups from time to time, and we've spoken of them to some degree, that would pop up, mm-hmm. right? these pre-Reformation groups, that some of which came to convictions regarding uh, credo-baptism, mm-hmm. right? So it's not to say that there weren't, there was nobody throughout all of history who ever came to these same conclusions. That's not true. There were. Mm-hmm. There were lots of people. Um, but it's it's just trying to, to shove a square peg into a round hole or whatever, right? Like, it's just, yeah. it's not, we don't have to do that to say that there was something that was lost and over time we're looking to rediscover it. Mm-hmm. That is, that is what the, that's what Luther was doing. That's what Calvin was doing. Right. Right. And that's what the Baptists were doing was say, this was a thing that did exist. It was lost for a time and we're here to recover it because mm-hmm. it, because we we see from our interpretation of scripture, our reading of scripture, that these things seem to be evident and true. Yeah, I, I would argue that there's I'm I'm more sympathetic to landmarkism and trail of blood mm. the more I study church history. But I think you have to acknowledge that there is a parenthetical absence. There's a period of time sitting between parentheses where this goes away. And even the ability to, to make note of a guy who had a thought mm. isn't, isn't proof right. of an unbroken line. Right. And, and that's where the trail of blood falls short, is that it presents itself as an unbroken line, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's creating history to fit a narrative. In my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think you got to be careful telling dead people that they were a part of your movement, but they didn't know it. And, and it actually undermine serves to undermine the legitimacy. Non-Baptists look at the concept of the trail of blood as a joke. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a good way to argue for the things that we believe to be true when it comes to how a church should operate and what it looks like. And interestingly enough, by and large, the, the map of landmarkism doesn't pick up with the Puritans, but with the Anabaptists mm-hmm. in mainland Europe, right. which is the second group that we're yes. going to talk about in the second potential history. So yeah. landmarkism, <clears throat> maybe doing it the way that we're doing it is the more appropriate way, because landmarkism sort of settles itself in the Anabaptist movement mm-hmm. and then picks up with a better known church history. Right. Um, but are Baptists... Reformed Anabaptists? Um, no, but technically also no. Okay, so... <laughs> I love it. So, I, I was sitting here thinking, like, <laughs> where on earth is he so, going with this? So, okay, so so here's the thing. The Anabaptist movement uh, began in the 1500s, mm-hmm. right? So the Mennonite movement, right? Conrad Grable, Menno Simons... These these groups began, 
And so the commonality that Anabaptists, a.k.a. Mennonite groups, have with Baptists is that they see, they have this, the common perspective of um, believer's baptism, mm-hmm. right? So there, there we find a common ground, right? right? But just because another group that had emerged around the same time or slightly before, like, doesn't mean that they are, therefore, of the same source. Right. Right? There's... Two groups can independently come to comparable comparable convictions on a particular issue independent from one another. Mm-hmm. That being said, there will be a little bit of crossover that happens with one particular flavor or one brand of the early Baptist church. Mm-hmm. So there... It's not that there is no contact. There's not that there's no understanding. It's not that nobody, you know, nobody on on the British Isle was reading anything written by an Anabaptist. You know, it's it's there is this there is this dialogue, this interaction, and this like this circulation of varying ideas and perspectives that is happening that is going to influence people. Mm-hmm. So to say that the Baptists there was no influence whatsoever from the Anabaptists, I think is probably just not entirely true. Yeah. But to say that the Baptists came out of right the Anabaptist Mennonite movement, I would say is historically not true. Yeah, there's there's no there's no evidence of any teacher who travels to England and inspires a Baptist movement in in such a way that you would say that is foundational. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. that you would have Conrad Grable come and speak, mm-hmm. and a group of people form and say, "Because he, because of this influence, I, I choose this." Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look like someone who's not your mom, right? right? Like in in the <laughs> end, we're, in the end, we're talking about a couple dozen doctrines, all mm-hmm. being birthed from the same book the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's going to be resemblance and spillover. Oh, sure. Yeah. But as far as a historical tracking of mm-hmm. this birthing that, mm-hmm. it's available in the mainland uh, Europe. There is a group of German Baptists mm-hmm. that come from an Anabaptist movement that's traceable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Anabaptists were about so much more than baptizing. Right. And, and that's what we have to, to do here is to say we can't hang our hats on one issue. On one issue. Yeah. Because that's what people want to do when they make this connection. They're like, everything comes down to confessional baptism, creedal right. baptism. Right. But it doesn't. No. They they weren't uh they weren't pacifists. Mm-hmm. The Baptists, early Baptists are not pacifists, mm-hmm. which is as important as confessional baptism right. in the Anabaptist movement. In the Anabaptist movement for sure, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. They they saw a separation of church and state, but certainly not to the same degree as the Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. They said the government shouldn't dictate what happens in the church. They didn't say that people who are part of the church should be outside of society entirely. Right. Right? So there are significant distinctions. So again, might there have been dialogue? Might there have been influence? There is. There actually is. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about it in a minute. There there is some kind of discussion and in, 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 in rubbing up against one another to some degree that, that happens. But again, it's really going to come out of, of, of what's happening in England. I agree. So let's talk about what is going on in England and why we believe that this is the better option, which I would say 
most Baptist historians also hold to. But yeah. but why is it the better option? Okay, so in the 1600s, during the Puritan movement that we have discussed now on multiple episodes, one of the groups that kind of emerged from within England that was not entirely in line with the Anglican Church were the separatists. And in fact, there's, there's separatists and there's independents, and they're very similar. One is separate from the Anglican Church, the other is independent. So, I mean, are we talking about semantics? But in any case, these groups that are not in line with the structure and order of the, you know, the government-run church. And, you know, they held certain common views with 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 one another and with the Anglican Church, but they, they saw themselves distinct. They were calling for a greater degree of reformation. They were calling for a greater degree of autonomy. Mm-hmm. They, one of the big identifiers with them is that they were not beholden to the the bishops and the archbishops of the Anglican Church. They didn't see the monarch as the head of God's church on earth. Right. So they were distinct in that way. And I think the best way to say it is they don't see a top-down structure in Scripture, mm-hmm. yes. right? Where even even these other Reformed traditions maintain some level of a top-down uh, of a top-down order. Yes, uh, Alistair McGrath mm. is a Scottish Church historian, probably a part of. Presbyterian Church because of it, mm-hmm. uh, but One he wrote, would assume he wrote a book called Christianity's Dangerous Idea, which is a history of the church post Reformation. The thesis behind why he titled the book what it is is that it's a dangerous concept, although the right concept. He wouldn't argue that it's not the right concept to empower the individual to read Scripture and interpret it for themselves. Mm. Because in that gives the opportunity for people to take it or dismiss it, to build the church on it, or to build the church on a false understanding of it. Mm. I think Alistair McGrath probably wrote that with the title with Baptists in mind. (laughs) Because because (laughs) not having this top-down order Mm -hmm. is why... Baptist churches from from one church to the next uh, can be pretty different. Like, not entirely different. Yeah, yeah no, I know what you mean, though. Uh, but, but can be different. Yeah, totally. Which is also kind of why the history is all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So some would say, say that it started with a character named John Smith. So he was an Anglican minister who came to Credo Baptist Convictions, who ended up leaving England... Uh, for Holland in 1607. And then he travels to the Americas and meets Pocahontas. <laughs> no. Not him specifically. Not that John Smith. Although, ironically, there were people who were among his followers who ended up on the Mayflower not long after, yep. Yep. which is kind of interesting. But he was there along with a guy named Thomas Helwes. Um, Smith, coming to these convictions about credo baptize, baptism, baptized himself. It's a little awkward. I'm sorry. I, the look on your face when I made that statement about traveling to the Americas yeah. and meeting Pocahontas, you were just like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> no, I had the Mayflower thing in the chamber. I was ready to go. I don't know what you're talking about. You're just about. looking at me like, that's that's not right. I was good to go. Okay, Yeah, no, you're right. I was a little bit shocked, but I'm good. I roll with the punches here. We're three years in, baby. Okay, so 
they were okay. So here's the thing: this congregation, who this guy baptized himself, and then Thomas, and then they baptized everybody else. The self baptism thing's a little weird, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were while they were there in conversation with Dutch Mennonites mm-hmm. and a Baptist. So this is where kind of that that influence comes in, right? And and through that, um, Smith was convinced to abandon the doctrine of predestination. Mennonites not down with predestination, right? Um, and Smith, having come up in the Anglican Church, had at least a theology of predestination, not mm-hmm. quite that of Calvin, but comparable, right? And, and to to solidify this in the timeline, you, it's hard to say they were Arminian Bef- because yeah. Arminianism is just now settling itself to right. Like uh, we have to remember that this has not been a chronological flow. Hmm. necessarily yeah there's a lot of leapfrogging going mm-hmm. forward and backward and forward and backward and so sometimes when we say this follows from that we're talking like five ten years yeah we're, we're not talking like decades this there's just so much going on in this reformation period that you can't do a linear thing mm-hmm. um yeah no, and, and so so out. to say even though we talked about arminius like five episodes ago it's still we're talking just a couple years, yeah, and and it's still solidifying, yeah. Um, yeah. So you can't you can't argue that these things are birthed from Arminius, yeah. either. So John Smith ends up actually just going, deciding to go to towards full on Mennonite convictions, and wants to join with the Mennonite Church. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually denied, which is interesting before his death. Really? Uh, yeah, that he wanted them to baptize him, and they said no. Um, but he was excommunicated by his number two, Helwes, for going over to the Mennonites. Complicated situation. Anyways, he just felt that that was a, t- a step too far. Um, Helwes, Thomas Helwes, would end up going back to England in 1611, and he would write a, a statement of faith, and he would found a church, um, and they would kind of be the beginning of what would come to be known as General Baptists. Right. And so the important timeline note mm-hmm. is that these men came to their conviction, traveled to mainland Europe, mm-hmm. and met with people they knew to have the same conviction. Mm-hmm. And then, well, one of them comes back. Yeah. Right? That's that's the distinction that I think goes wrong sometimes when people say, oh, well, there's evidence of these communications and teachings and things like that. Mm. Um, they didn't go there without the conviction and become convinced. Right. They went with this conviction, mm-hmm. met with someone who had a similar conviction mm-hmm. to talk it out with them, mm-hmm. and then said, yeah, we're not exactly on the same page. Right. And right. came back to England. Yeah. So that is the beginning of the General Baptist. Now, they're known as the General Baptist for this reason. They see, and it touches back on our our episode on Calvinism. Mm-hmm. They did they did not believe in limited atonement, right? So Christ's atonement is a general atonement. It is atonement for all sins for all people, mm-hmm. it's general, right? So they were not Calvinistic. They would have been closer. They may not not have called themselves Arminian, at least not at first, but would have been more in line with Arminian theology. Yeah, they the general w- Baptists. They would have had a different position on election. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Shortly thereafter, not that shortly, but, you know, within 20 years or so, uh, John Spilsbury, a cobbler, who's someone who makes shoes and repairs them, from London, 
who was also a member of one of these separatist Anglican churches. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a Calvinist by in regards to his, you know, theology of salvation and, and the, you know, the relationship between the will of God and the will of man. He comes to Baptistic convictions. So he's a Calvinist, but he comes to, but it's believer's baptism mm-hmm. and it's churches should be autonomous and, and, you know, the government should not be directing what the church should do, et cetera, et cetera. So he leaves his previous church in 1633 and he starts the first particular Baptist church. Right. So again, particular Baptist, different from general Baptist in that Christ's atonement is effective or rather was for a particular group of people. Right. So a view of limited atonement that Christ bears the sins of those who would come to salvation. He doesn't bear the sins of everyone. Yeah, and I would I would argue that the particular notion seems to be stronger on election than atonement. Okay. Because very early on, we also see what we call today, like today we talk about four-point Calvinists. Right. Right, which is very strong in the Baptist church, mm-hmm. um, where the point denied is the atonement. Mm. Right? They say Christ died for all people, but it's only applied to the elect. Sure. Right? Um, and so that's the one notion of the five points of the tulip that they would deny. Mm. But four-point Calvinism is there almost from the beginning. Like, I, I, when I say not from the beginning, I mean, in that sort of like month to early years kind of thing. There was a tolerance for that. So okay. that's my understanding, mm. is that it's more about election of particular people that Christ came to save, mm. the elect, versus the general salvation is available to all, which in a very muddy way gets into atonement as well. Yeah, it's um, the same question, really, ultimately, in my mind, but, but yeah. Sure, but that's because you're a five pointer. <laughs> uh, but they would they would claim four of the five, right? Early on, and still call themselves particular Baptists, right? Right. Uh, no, the particular Baptists would would claim all five. The the the, 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 but, the general Baptists would call themselves Reformed and not claim all five. That's ooh. my understanding. Oh, really? Mm, oh. I I think we're gonna have some disagreement, okay. and, and and in part, in part. This is due to the difficulty of tracking down Baptist story. Yeah, it's, uh, well, because this is a, okay. This is a fringe minority. It is <laughs> right. It is this in its early days. It's a fringe minority, and it's people who are coming. There's there's various people as don't don't miss the fact that this is within a generation of the King James Bible. Don't mm-hmm. don't forget that this is like this is within that time period of people getting the Bible in their hands right. in an affordable, accessible way. Right. So, so so you have all these people coming to these types of convictions regarding things like baptism, church government, church and state, those sorts of things. And they're going to be coming from different places. My right. understanding was that John Spilsbury was a, would have called himself a Calvinist. Oh, I yeah, I him in particular. Yeah. Uh, the Baptist story is a really, a really good read. I don't have it, um, but it is Nathan Finn. Anthony Shute, and Dr. Michael Haken. Oh, nice. Uh, local, and, local. And my understanding of Nathan Finn's position 
is to say that these things were about election. Mm. And from the beginning, particular Baptists could have been four or five points, mm. and they coexisted okay. in that way, in a complicated relationship, but in that way. Okay, cool. Um, but as a Calvinist, dissecting the soteriological points of Calvinism mm-hmm. is a very delicate, if not impossible thing. Yeah, yeah. And wasn't, yeah, and wasn't as kind of firmly established as it is now then, right? Still, people still working through these types of questions. Yeah. But if you love this concept of studying the Baptist more, I would recommend the Baptist story. Yeah. $17 on a Kindle edition. Yeah, well, Michael Haken also does a Baptist history class at Heritage that... Even if you're not a student, um, you can um, audit the course mm-hmm. for a couple hundred bucks or something. And uh, so if that's something you're interested in, I'd highly, highly recommend it. He's probably one of the greatest Baptist historians alive or ever. And he is in our backyard. So Yeah, I really toyed with the, with the notion of inviting him, mm. but I was too intimidated. Yeah, me too. So... Going back to this John Spilsbury and his kind of uh, particular Baptist cohort, they what they're really getting at as they're writing things, as they're kind of identifying themselves from everything else, it's around baptism and church membership. Those mm-hmm. are the, the big questions, right? Now, like the Presbyterians before them, they affirm this idea of covenant theology. So they, they believed in the eternal covenant of grace, but... Unlike the Presbyterians, they believe that the New Covenant, in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit operates in a different way, so we can't just assume that infants born to Christians are automatically in the New Covenant, whereas Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, covenant theology says, if you're born to believers, you're in the New Covenant. Mm -hmm. Somehow you can get out of it. You can be in the New Covenant, but not saved, where Baptists would say, no, the way to get into the new covenant is by being saved. Right. That's the most simple way I can put it. I agree. So there's the major distinction mm-hmm. between Baptists and the people around them. Right. Which means most evangelical churches today are Baptistic. Yes. That's their origin. Yeah. And so if you have... Uh, I. Finn, who was a part of writing that book, I I heard him say in an interview, um, most churches are Baptists, even if they've gone non-denominational because they're embarrassed that they're Baptist. Yeah. Uh, Most churches are Baptist churches. Yes. Uh, In Canada, the AGM. AGC. AGC. Yep. Missionary Alliance. They're Baptist. Evangelical missionary churches. Mm-hmm. They're all Baptists. Right. Not by, by name, but the, by distinction yeah, of belief. Whatever the, the church is formerly known as Harvest, they're yep. all Baptists. So, and I, I think the fairest way to say is Baptistic. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah, because their church governance might, may or may not be the same. But and, more often than not, it actually is going to look a lot more like a Baptist church than a Presbyterian or Anglican right. or a Roman Catholic church. And, and that's just to hammer home the fact that this is how messy... Right. This is this is how messy it gets when you when you entrust people right. with the word of God. Yes. To uh, interpret it 
and to act upon it. Mm. A lot of mainline churches look at Baptist and Baptistic groups and say, you're crazy. Right. Oh, yeah. Because this is going to end up all over the place. Right. And, and I think the response is, you bet it is. Yeah. But at the same time. Yeah. Look what's going this on. Seems, <laughs> this seems to be what God has put forth. Sure. And so we equip everyone. Mm-hmm. And pray that they will be genuine in their following of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. uh, to enact His will, to live according to His will, um, as He would have them to do. Yeah. And and to be honest, like, and I understand the reasoning of like the the danger of individual congregations and their elders and their pastors kind of figuring out where they're at and and being independent, potentially opening up the doors to things things going off the rails. I mm-hmm. get that for sure. And it's happened admittedly throughout history. It has happened in certain contexts, but let's not pretend that the top down structure is an absolute fail safe against the same thing happening. Oh, sure. Look at the Anglican church. Yeah. Look at the Lutheran church. Look at these, these top down structure churches. No, no thanks. Um, they look nothing like the, you know, what the, the people they're named after would advocate for. Right. We talked about this whole thing. Knox would not be happy right. with most Presbyterian churches. The, the author of the first sounding of the trumpet yeah. of the <laughs> monstrous reign of women. Right. With a lesbian pastor. No, thanks. now has yeah. uh, female pastors. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. It, and that's just to show diversion. Yeah. From obviously. That, right? So, so yeah. again, the top down structure is not a fail safe against issues coming but Mm -hmm. one of the cool one of the cool things one of the interesting things that i found in my research was that the mode of baptism did not immediately become immersion it was actually over a few decades from when these um first baptist churches were formed that they came to convictions about they had been sprinkling or pouring but after further study come to convictions about no, no no we should actually do immersion that that is a more appropriate way of doing it in light of what we read from scripture and what it symbolizes. So Smith baptizing himself was that just like it was probably a shower. He took a shower. It was probably sprinkling or pouring. Yeah, yeah, because it wasn't until much later that they started doing immersion. Yeah, like when I say much later, I mean like a few decades later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So <laughs> some of the things that are being written by Baptists, though, like they're not essentially making tons of friends. Because mm-hmm. sometimes they're being pretty critical mm-hmm. of those around them. Uh, one writer, I think it might have actually been Spillsbury, wrote that those who held to infant baptism were keeping the company with the Antichrist. Because he saw infant baptism as a practice of the Roman Catholic Church that was kept by Anglicans and Presbyterians, etc. Lutherans, the Reformed. Yeah. yeah. So he just said, his line to them was like, either go back to Rome or keep moving forward with us. <laughs> Semper Reformata. <laughs> Semper Reformata, yeah. Yeah, so so to say in line with the Antichrist, just to back that up, you have to remember that from Martin Luther on, mm-hmm. the Pope himself... In some instances, they're more gracious, and it's the office, right? the papal office. In other instances, it's the man himself is the Antichrist. Right. And so his statement is to say, "This, you're still Catholic. Right. You're still doing Catholic things. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, all the way back to Zwingli, Conrad Grable's having that conversation, right? Oh, yeah. 
Like yep. how how close are we going to stay in step with this? Yep. Let's keep let's keep reforming and keep pushing along. Whereas you have Martin Luther who who's just like, no, I I think we've done enough. I think we're good right. where we are. Yeah, we've gone yeah. far enough. Yeah, yeah. So there is a a first London Confession that's written by seven of these churches um, in the 1640s. Um, but again, there's seven of these mm-hmm. particular Baptist churches. Um, if you read it, it's pretty short. It's not a whole lot. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty, a lot of it's kind of pretty basic Christianity 101. Like there's mm-hmm. not, there's not a whole lot in there. Um, uh, they spend some particular time calling out those who deny original sin and universalist because those types of groups were cropping up in England. Right. Some of these separatist churches were going kind of like full antinomian, everybody's saved. There's no real law. There's no judgment. There's none of that. Um, they were going woke 400 years before it was cool. What then? Do we continue <laughs> to sin so that grace may abound? Right. Yes. Right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> By all means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyways, but but the, this group begins to grow substantially. So in a short period of time, so it, w- it went from seven churches in 1644 to about 130 mm-hmm. in 1660. So it's growing substantially. Um, again, call back to last couple episodes. Part of that is because this is the time of the English Civil War and then the rule of parliament without a king. Mm-hmm. So so religious toleration is kind of the rule of the land when the king's not on the throne. Right. Um, at least at this period of history. Um, so they are they're thriving. Really, they're they're able to spread their message. I mean, they may not be everybody's best friend, but but they're allowed to do what they they want to do. Cromwell is not cracking down on them. Mm-hmm. Um, early Baptist services were quite long. Sometimes would include multiple sermons. I was kind of reading up on like the order of service for these early Baptist sermons. Very different than Common Book of Prayer Anglican services. Yeah. Um, in in uh, in the former Soviet bloc. Mm. Having two or three sermons in a Baptist church is still the way they do it. Oh, really? Yeah. So when I when I've gone to Russia and the Ukraine in the past and preached, I was one of the preachers. Interesting. And full sermons, two or three full sermons. Wow. Mm-hmm. So one of the descriptions I read is like it would kind of there would be a sermon that was more of like a, a lengthy scripture reading with some exposition. That included discussion. And then you would have a more formal get up and preach sermon later on. At least in that context, that was mm-hmm. being described. Yep. But I thought that was kind of a neat thing, too. It's like doing your small group Bible study in the room before doing your... Sunday school, man. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so, right? Um, and so they became known over time as the Baptists. They got this name, as many groups do, from their opponents. Um, early on, they referred to themselves as brethren of the baptized way or the baptized churches because they viewed creedal baptism as legitimate. Mm -hmm. So everyone else is unbaptized. If you've been baptized as a baby in their minds and and in our minds, haven't really been baptized. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but that's... Yeah, I I would say um, I understand what you're doing and that you're calling it baptism, but it's I wouldn't call it baptism as per scriptural declaration. I would agree, yeah. They were often called Anabaptists, which was meant to be and was taken as an insult because mm-hmm. they did not see themselves as Anabaptists. They did not right. see themselves as Mennonites. They saw themselves as something distinct. Uh, they, they, <laughs> an often, a phrase that was often repeated, they would identify themselves as the Christians commonly, though falsely, 
called Anabaptists. <laughs> that's a, you got to have a big church sign to fit that on, them, <laughs> on the front board. Yeah, that's, yeah. And, and these Baptist churches, they formed associations as opposed to denominations. Right. This is an interesting thing. This is a yep. distinction from, from those around them. So they would have these associations where there would be fellowship, discussion, ideas would be moved forward. They would partner in ministries. They might even monitor what's going on, right? Um, they would partner to advocate for things like religious liberty. Um, but for the most part, they were not, again, they were not top down. Now, there's a difference in how General Baptists and particular Baptists tended to do it. The General Baptists tended to give their General Assembly a bit more oversight to just to make sure that things weren't getting out of hand, right? Um, and they saw their annual, so their annual meeting was, in their minds, a meeting of what they called the General Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. So the church is the assembly of these local churches. Mm-hmm. The particular Baptist saw it the opposite way. They said, no, 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 no. It's the individual churches that are the church, and these local expressions of the church come together. They really bent over backwards for church autonomy. That was like their big thing. Right. You could send messengers to meet and consider and discuss, but no decision that was made at the assembly level was binding on a local church. Right. And and this is this is still existent today. This is the way we organized. And, yeah. and when if people want to ask, you know, what is what is the difference between us and any other denomination and how we operate? It's not so true anymore because baptistic denomination or associations have expanded greatly. Sure. Um, but to say that we have formed associations is to say gatherings of like-minded churches mm. cooperating in ministry and offering to each other accountability is how we are organized, but mm-hmm. not governed. Yeah. Right? So, for example, uh, years back, the uh, Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, which is the group that we're a part of, mm-hmm. um, made the decision to state outright, we do not accept baptisms unless they are confessional immersive baptisms. Right. The individual churches don't have the right to interpret that on their own. You could look at that and say, that's pretty top down. Mm-hmm. And I don't like where you're going with that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people did. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the other interpretation of that is we are offering to each other accountability to say there are specific things that make up the character of why we are united. Mm-hmm. And one of them is this. Yeah. And if you don't want to be a part of it, you don't have to be a that's, part of it. That's the distinction. That, and right. that's the thing that people need to understand is the difference between a group like the fellowship versus a denomination. Right. Because the fellowship is not a denomination. Right. So when the CRC has ascended mm-hmm. and they vote on a decision, mm-hmm. discipline can flow from that. It's binding. It's binding for all churches. Yeah. Um. And they can come in and remove pastors and replace pastors and that sort of thing. In a Baptist church, any discipline based on a national assembly would be to say to that person, if you don't agree with the assembly, 
you would probably be better off in another assembly. Yeah. Like, and at that point, it would be the entire church body mm-hmm. that would have to make the decision, yeah. do we stay or do we go? Mm-hmm. And and that's why the, the Feb is going to help churches look for pastors, but they're not going to appoint pastors. No. Right? Yeah. They're not going to take pastors down. Mm-hmm. They will say to a church, listen, your pastor's preaching heresy. Mm-hmm. If the church is for this teaching know that it's outside of the scope of our association's beliefs mm-hmm. and you're going to be dismembered from the association because you're no longer mm-hmm. joint in that. And this is the accountability that we offer, mm-hmm. but it's not authoritative. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the distinction. If people are, are curious um, when it comes to their denomination question, I love to just throw that out that we're not a denomination and yeah. then get people kind of being like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. And, and then, and then all the other groups, right. They, that come from that would be like, well, I'm Pentecostal and we would do the same thing. Be like, well, that's because You're your church's, your church's <laughs> ecclesiology is Baptistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as these things are coming together, there, you know, there's, there's an ebb and flow of kind of how things are developing. What really puts, throws a wrench in the mix is what we talked about last week on the Puritan episode, the reinstitution of the crown in 1660. Um, and then for the following almost 30 years, um, things got really rough for the Mm -hmm. Baptists. Persecution was a real thing. Um, typically would be pastors who would be targeted and thrown in prison for extended periods of time. We talked about guys like John Bunyan, where it's, you know, a three-month sentence turns into 12 years or whatever it was that he was in prison for. Often these guys, I mean, they come out of jail severely ill and on the brink of death. So they're not overtly executed, but sometimes these lengthy prison sentences were as good as a death sentence. Um, sometimes there were occasional attacks on congregations, Baptist congregations, right? Armed soldiers showing up violently disrupting gatherings. Um, so sometimes they would move these gatherings outside of the cities, outside of the towns, into other areas, into forests. I read one account where, you know, some of these gatherings got quite large because even in, in the midst of the persecution, they were popular. Over a thousand people in attendance in the middle of a forest hearing a guy preach. Like, that's crazy. That's awesome. People walking from miles out of town mm-hmm. by the hundreds. Right. Like it's just, yeah. So these are the types of things that are happening. And, and this continues until something called the glorious revolution. Um, we're not going to go into deep detail. James II, who was King of England at the time was increasingly favoring the Catholic church was kind of a Catholic or his kids were Catholic, whatever. There's a whole, we talked about the flip flopping Mm -hmm. English crown Protestant Lords invite William of Orange, who was a Dutch prince, who was the grandson of Charles I, who previous king of England, uh, to come and take the crown. He shows up with an army, and James just takes off. He just leaves. Yeah. So essentially, William took England. It was the last successful invasion of England in history. But the only one that the, the, the previous one was William the Conqueror. William the first, 600 years before. Yeah. Um, But William of Orange does it essentially without any bloodshed and just takes the, takes the crown. And with him, with his rule where he kind of co-ruled with Mary, because she was the daughter, I think of the, the current, of James, they co-ruled and they passed all these laws that one of which we talked about already, the bill of rights, the most important one for our podcast, the act of toleration. The act of toleration was a religious freedom law. And essentially was this, as long as you're still loyal to king and country, you nonconformists, separatists, independents, Baptists, 
they could gather for worship. They could hold land, places for worship. They could have their own school school teachers. They could teach what they wanted. This did not apply. This toleration did not apply to Catholics and non-Trinitarians. So if you're Mm -hmm. a Roman Catholic, no. And if you're a non-Trinitarian, which, you know, if you're some kind of cult that doesn't believe in the distinction between Father and Son, then also not for you. But this was a windfall for the Baptist Church. Sure. This was from this point onwards, they could finally operate freely and not in some kind of like gray area that they did during the the parliamentary rule and during the civil war and not you know under the cover of darkness as they did under the kings after the reinstitution of the crown but finally they could publicly be baptist Mm -hmm. and so this is a huge huge deal for them and uh and like i said this is at the same time as the bill of rights comes into to place and so this is a big move in, in the direction of religious and political freedom in England. And that's what the Baptists were all about, was freedom of freedom of religion and, and the separation of church and state. Yeah, and the separation of church and state is not just that the church leaves us alone, but also that the church doesn't get involved in government. It went both ways. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's going both ways. Not to the point, like you said, not to the point of the Anabaptist that says... A Christian is wrong for participating in these things. Right. But so far as to say uh, the church isn't about making laws mm-hmm. and political power mm-hmm. is a dangerous thing for the church. Yeah. Why? Well, because they also study church history. Yeah. And it only proved to be true time and time yeah. again. There were there were MPs, members of parliament, who were Baptists, mm-hmm. who would serve in the government, right. but not as representatives of the Baptist church trying, like, you know what I mean? Like, they were just right. locally locally elected for parliament. So, again, it's not this utter removal from society, right. as the Anabaptists would, would advocate for, but instead would, you know, they would participate, but not, not see the church as a political tool. Yeah, I, I would say... If we look back to Augustine's Citizen of Two Kingdoms, Mm. the Baptist position, my personal position, take advantage of all the rights and liberties, opportunities that you have as a citizen of the country. Mm -hmm. Also knowing that your allegiance is to your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Right. Um, Participate in the government. Mm -hmm. Vote, run for office, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's your right as a citizen, and you should express that. Sure. Uh. Does the church need a seat in parliament to share? History has just proven that it's not helpful. Yeah. It's not an expectation of scripture, mm-hmm. um, and it, it only goes poorly. That's yeah. that's the Baptist concept of separation of church and state, which yeah. through lobbyisms and things like that has kind of gone awry. <laughs> sure. In our, in our waning moments. Not in our country, but <laughs> in your country. Oh, please. Please. <laughs> you think the Feb has any political power? Give me a break. Not as an organization, but individually. Baptists oh, would love to be more American in that way. Oh, sure. A number yeah. of them would. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, and that's an easy statement to make because when it comes to Baptists, you can just throw out anything and surely there's someone out there who's a Baptist surely. who feels that way. <laughs> the question is often asked, mm. are Baptists reformed or is it just its own thing? Yeah. The the question is generally asked because many Presbyterians, Lutherans, whatever, point to a particular creed mm-hmm. and say, we hold to this creed. 
<laughs> and so creedalism for them confessionalism or, con, yeah con, yeah sure yeah creedalists are reformed mm. because we have a creed that we hold to and that's what makes us a reformed body mm-hmm. baptists have the 1644 followed by the 1689 yeah london baptist confession you have one in your hand i do to be fair it is basically the westminster mm-hmm. uh revised yeah yeah so they heavily took the the westminster confession and then adjusted a few areas. I mean, they re they reworked the wording. Like, it's not a it's not an absolute copy. It's not paste, a copy paste, but it's but it's but it's like it's pattern. It's I would say it's patterned off of. If the you turned it tradition. in as a if you turned it in as a document in school, you'd be flagged for plagiarism. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, to be further fair to that creedalistic point, mm-hmm. most Baptists don't know that the 1689 exists. Yeah. And I if they do, they've never read it. Um, that is changing, my brother. It is changing. It is changing. Yeah. But we are not creedalists no, in that no, way. No. And to the point that even though you, as a great proponent of the 1689, mm-hmm. also have issue with it. Yeah, it, I don't... And I, don't, I say you. Yeah. I, I would as well. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So is creedalism the benchmark for... A church of Reformation. It's t- that's tough, man. It's tough because because there's two ways to look at it. We've had this conversation before about this like a super narrow view of what it means to be reformed, mm-hmm. less hyper narrow view, and excluding all other options and how we, we we've poked holes in that already, right? Of like, well, no church is born out of the Reformation. Reformation is is like is redoing things, is a, is a moving away and a rebuilding of what had been obscured or even obliterated in, under the Roman Catholic system. So there's a sense in which all churches that have emerged since Martin Luther are Reformed churches. The tricky thing in Baptist circles is that because, as you said, it is congregationally led, and it's not top-down, so it's up to individual congregations— not having some kind of unifying standard of belief can really muddy the waters. Because mm-hmm. are we going to say that every single Baptist church that exists is quote-unquote reformed? Well, in a sense, you could say, historically, they, they were their heritage comes out of the Reformation, so they're reformed. That's one way to define it. Is that the best way to define it? I don't even really know. Yeah, I think having a common set of beliefs can help kind of standardized to say, okay, like, what do you guys believe about the Word of God? Mm-hmm. What do you guys believe about the person of Jesus Christ? What do you guys believe about, you know, all these other issues? And so to have a document that you can, a common document, to just say, we believe the Bible. Everyone believes the Bible. Everyone says they believe the Bible, even people who obviously don't, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. Like the Mormons say they believe the Bible. They don't, right? Yeah. So to just say, well, the Bible is our creed and we need no other— that's a joke. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Right. So you, I, I think it's helpful to have something that you can point to, whether it's an individual church's statement of faith, whether it's a common statement of faith like we have for the fellowship, or whether it's a historical document like the 1689, to have something to say, this is what we believe. This mm-hmm. is who we are. This is where we're at. Here's my personal position. Okay. A creed and a common statement mm. was never a part 
of the Reformation to begin with. Martin Luther makes some statements. These things need to be fixed, but it wasn't about the church needs a common set of teachings that we hold to. Yeah. The Catholics have that. Yeah. So having a creeds and confessions mm. doesn't make you not Catholic. Mm. In fact, it's kind of a Catholic thing. Well, because um, originally he was trying to reform the Catholic Church. Right, right, right. And so the reform aspect of it was, what do you believe about these things that are being taught? Mm-hmm. Do you believe in Christ alone, through Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, these kinds of things, the solas? That was mm-hmm. the heart of what a Reformed church was. Mm. Then we want to take what Reformed means and make it about Calvinistic soteriology. Right. How does a person become saved? Right. That's the definition of Reformed. Right. And we've already said that can't be because that's not the root of what the Reformation was about. Mm-hmm. Right. The Reformation was about changing all of these things for a dependency on God. I, I think making soteriology the definition of whether or not you're Reformed is overstepping and it is changing what is reformation to fit Mm. your narrative in that particular conversation. And then those same people many times Mm -hmm. will then bring in the creedal argument Mm -hmm. and you're just going to be like, what what is it? Is it soteriology? Is it your creed Mm -hmm. or the fact that you have a creed? What, what is reformed is such a moving target at this point that it doesn't even make sense. In my mind, in my mind, reformation is looking at the practices of the Catholic Church in the medieval period and saying these are wrong and need to be returned to what is a more biblical position. Mm-hmm. So you have that with the early reformers, traditional early reformers. On the British Isle, you have the Anglican Church, which is a part of that. From that comes a group who says, hey, this is a little more Catholic than it needs to be, and we need to purify it, the Puritans. Mm-hmm. There's a group of Puritans that say, this isn't enough, and we need to just separate, not just reform the Anglican Church, and they become the separatists. From that, you get the Baptists, who say, no, it needs to be reformed even more toward what we believe to be Scripture. Right. I'm going to go out there and say the Baptists are the most reformed. <laughs> I would agree with you, brother, but there's a lot so, of people. So just a lot of Dutch people who, that Scottish people who are screaming. Right this now. is 10 minutes over. <laughs> this is 10 minutes over just because I wanted to poke at any Presbyterian CRC Anglican listener. If we have those people, I'm so thankful. I would I would here. love to hear from you. Yeah. I'm even so if even here. if it's just to say you're an idiot, man. Yeah, we uh, do we like we we can disagree and it's okay. Right. So that is why the title of this episode is going to be Reformed, Reformed or Reformedists. <laughs> the story of the Baptists. <laughs> Alex doesn't like when the titles get long, but this one doesn't have an option. You know what? And reform titles should be long, right? That's true. That's one common theme we can affirm. That's something we can carry over from the Puritans. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario. Mm. Uh, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, which has all different forms of referendum represented flavors and is produced by alex walker yes it is talk to you later bye